Are you with us or are you against us? That's the question that many hot and topical news stories seem to have buried underneath. Topics which, to even question them, get you shunned from your family, the community, your voters. If you stand for the flag, you must be a conservative. If you think Black Lives Matter, you must be a liberal socialist. None of these assumptions are true. They're lazy stereotypes at best. There's nothing more patriotic about a Trump family than a Biden family. No matter how many flags you have or how loudly you scream about socialism, You don't have to be black to defend your black neighbors and fellow Americans against inequality. You don't have to defend bad police policy in order to support the good that police do. We must stop staying in these political camps that we find ourselves in. Our country and these hard issues that we're dealing with, they can't sustain that. Over the next three episodes, we're going to talk about the history of the police, why we created them, why we gave them their power, and who exactly are they? Who wants to be a cop in today's world? It turns out plenty of really great people do. This episode, by the way, is not anti-cop. But isn't it sad that I even had to say that in order to question policing in America? Several of the books we referenced for these episodes started with that same disclaimer, that to even question policing is such a taboo topic that they had to say that. And this is also not a right-wing puff piece for cop culture that's going to explain away lots of good statistics and endless personal stories of violence from bad police with a claim that it was for a common good or that it was just a few bad apples. We're going to talk about the actual police structure, how good cops are made, and how good cops become bad cops in our system. In addition to sharing why many people are demanding reform or even removal of the police, we're going to applaud the good that police do and tell some of their stories. We're going to talk about stories from cops such as the constant worry that they'll be ambushed or the daily personal trauma that they go through, which might lead to bad decisions, but might not actually be a bad cop. We'll talk about the militarization of the police, the rise of SWAT teams in situations that vastly misuse war equipment and tactics against American citizens for nonviolent, consensual crimes, usually drug-related. We're going to talk about the glorification of police in American culture, both the deserved and the not. And we're going to have a discussion about the concern that many people have that we have made the police into a standing army of which our forefathers specifically warned us against. And to them, the police just represent a deliverer of government tyranny. We'll talk about a time when Republicans were on the exact opposite side of this issue and how it's flipped over the decades many times because of changing demographics of voters and for political gain on both sides. 
We'll discuss the code of silence and the punishment that police receive for standing up for what's right, whistleblowing or snitching as police commonly call it. Lastly, and most of all, we're going to provide a primer so that you can go forward and make your own decisions based on our research into this topic to unite people together instead of ripping them apart like a lot of other shows do. In this three-part series, we'll talk about good cops, bad cops, and the vast amount of gray area between the two that keeps us in place and silent as the problem intensifies in every single community in America. That starts today on Social Discord. That's how we support our police as well, by taking them out of situations that are going to get everyone in trouble. I like other cops, but we need to hold these people accountable. Their interactions with police have all been negative. The, the news that they're getting is all negative. Because that's, to me, what this kind of implies is being a police officer is who they are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Social Discord. Episode 22, Good Cop, Bad Cop, Part 1. Why we created the police, a history lesson. I'm Dalen Turk. I'm Kara Tebow. And I'm Curtis Medina. There we go. I want you all to know that I accidentally did the wrong intro before this, so we had to restart that. But we're good. <laughs> we're fine. And as you can tell, it's been a minute since we've uh, posted an episode with all three three of us together. Our lives kind of got... together again. Yeah, here we, we are. We got the, the gang back. back. Um, all of our lives kind of got super chaotic with Curtis's busy season starting, Kara getting her new job going, me getting my new job going. It's been a little all over the place, so we took a bit of time off just to settle down. But we're back. I hope you enjoyed the episode of uh, on CRT. Um, but today, as I said in the intro, we're going to be diving into the history of police in America. It's our next heavy hitter series. We're going to be doing part two uh, coming up after this. But uh, Curtis, you've been hard at work on these notes. So why don't you take us away? Yeah, like so. Yeah, this is going to be a heavy hitter, like the heaviest of, of hitters. Um I feel like this is just like the biggest issue that is going on in America today. It is something that has just swallowed us up. You know, people that are often say, you know, on the same side of of a lot of issues are are just polar opposite of the, on this one. And, uh, and, you know, there was a lot of pressure um, in researching and, and putting together this episode to try to figure out a way to fairly tell it because we didn't just want to crap all over, you know, cops for two hours, which you know some of my friends would have really liked us to have done. <laughs> Same for yes. Um, I talked to a couple of them. Every time I was like, you know, hey, you're really trying to interview a cop, or really trying to, you know, you know, kind of give the whole story. They were like, why? <laughs> like, I'm like, because that's news. Like, because we're not, we're not just gonna like, you know, we're not just talk radio. We're not just gonna spew out a bunch of hate yeah. or whatever. We're not gonna yeah, sit here and just be like, so why do you hate cops? Like, right. <laughs> that's no. not the point of the episode. Like, like to me, like the whole, like, like what interested me in this and like sort of like how we came up with the title and everything of Good Cop, Bad Cop is like, you know, depending on who you talk to, they see cops completely different than, than other people, depending on their backgrounds and the different, you know, run-ins they may have had with cops, whether or not they were, um, you know, as a criminal or just, just, you know, calling them and whether or not they, they helped them or made the situation worse. You know, and or whether or not they had family that were cops. Um, you know, I should probably say right away that in, in my in my family, you know, I have a retired cop 
And and when I was visiting uh, my uh, their their house, um, I was asking you know some questions. Nothing nothing exactly that like we're gonna exactly cover today, but just trying to get an idea of sort of like the the mentality that goes into mm-hmm. what it is to be a cop. And uh, and and just how how people look at cops is just so wildly different. Like if you are flipping through the channels, you know you'll see. You'll see the show cops, which you know really idealizes cops, and a lot of cops live up to being something like that. And then you flip to the next one, and it's a show about a dirty cop, and it's like you know, <laughs> like they're the bad guys. And it's like, like you know, like it's 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 hard to know what to think without really spending the time, like we're doing in this episode, to figure out how we got to this place, what is real, what is not, mm-hmm. what is exaggerated, and and try to make your own opinion. So you know, no matter which side of this you think you're on i want you to kind of buckle up and go for this ride with us you're going to buckle up because you don't want to get pulled over by a cop <laughs> oh but, oh no oh, oh no <laughs> the dad jokes are early <laughs> we're coming back strong oh, folks okay. <laughs> no, no but like you know really just like kind of like just just sit tight and like and and let's go for this ride together because we're gonna because we did a lot of research we we you know we, we, we've uh, listened to um a podcast called things cops see um which mm-hmm. is um a excellent podcast yeah highly recommended whether you are um in the police force or whether you are you know totally opposed to police or whatever you should definitely listen to it because it, it does what very few programs have ever been able to do in that it it show it humanizes cops yes. like it doesn't make them into these superheroes nor does it villainize them it it asks them very plain questions about like things like you know what were what were the the you know the scariest moments that you had or yeah. you, know, you know when you first got that hot call that that just made your blood boil like you know like what was going through your mind fascinating so we listened to that you know to try to get that perspective well it was and, interesting um, with that show with the episode that i listened to just to touch on a little more is what he did very well to not make because basically he's a retired police officer and he interviews people within law enforcement just you know he's actually going back to into the police is department. he okay he said it in the last episode. um but he does a very good job at because you see so many times with people who do try and get police officers to open up to be more vulnerable is oftentimes it's just question 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 of these hard hitting questions and mm-hmm. they shut off they get defensive but he does a very good job of using his empathy using his understanding and asking the tough questions but for example the episode i listened to he would say you know tell me about the you know the toughest call you ever had and then the next question he'd be like so what's your favorite way to cook venison you know, because he right. connect because he was able to connect with him because a large part of their conversation was about hunting, and so right, he was able and- to connect with him on a on a humane level, other than just like, oh, so you know, what was the biggest drug bust you've ever done, and do you, you know, you know, it's not a gotcha type thing, which is what we're trying right. to avoid. Right. Well, and I think we agonized over this a little bit and had conversations about this, trying to figure out how to go about this because we all have, you know some strong views, I think, on the re- the reforming that needs to happen in the police industry. But then a lot of us, we, all three of us do no police officers, husband or family, like you mm-hmm. said, and, and understand that they there, may, there probably is a place for police somewhere here. So we really, really agonized over how do we do this right? 
how do we portray everything? Like you said, and then we got to be able to back it up with some research and Curtis, you did such a good job putting this research together. So I'm glad that we're going to be able to have this episode and, you know, have a leg to stand on. And what I realized too was, you know, this didn't just happen. Like Mm -hmm. police didn't just all of a sudden just come into being. Like we have created the police exactly how they are over time, um, at least through our politicians, if not directly through us. And and if there is going to be any change or or if we're going to make the police force better, you know, then it's going to have to be a willful thing that we do and have an honest discussion and not just be throwing back and forth headlines to one another. Right. You know, there's this feeling like, like with a lot of these issues that we cover, you know, it's like you're either with us, you're against us. And when you start off a conversation like that, there's no way to grow. And you have to understand that, like, no matter what side you're on, um, you know, it doesn't really matter, like, because if you don't come together and figure out your, your issues, like, the only people that win are politicians that use these dividing forces to gain power and that and that is definitely on all sides <laughs> of <laughs> politics you know i mean as we'll see in in some of the history you know republicans have used this for 40 years to to gain power through uh the war on crime the war on drug democrats have also used it um people like joe biden who you may hate but you know what? Joe Biden loves cops. Like mm-hmm. he, I think yeah. he, he's a little bit more extreme right on policing than I think anybody realizes because he's been behind a lot of the uh, funding initiatives over his career that has that has really like beefed up cops for better or worse. Well, we talked um, about it quite a bit in our episode on private or on our series on private prisons, the '94 right. crime bill. Joe right. Biden wanted to prove that he is tough on crime. And if you want to be tough on crime, guess what? You got to back the blue. And he, you know, a lot of people, I think, will say that he doesn't. But if you look at his track record, he he very much so does. Right. So, you know, another big uh, source that we that we that we're going to be quoting a lot from um, is uh, Rise of the Warrior Cop. Um, Which, from my understanding... It took you a minute to get through that book. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it, it took me forever to read it, but like in a good way, because every page was like, and then this happened and then this happened. And, right. I'm, like, and I'm just like taking notes, you know, so we're going to just do like we're kind of doing the spark notes of it. But it was really helpful. Highly recommend uh, Rise of the Warrior Cop, um, the militarization of America's police forces by Radley Balco. And then not so much in today's episode, but more in the next episode. We have we, we also got quite a bit from. Um, Policing the Black Man, and I actually don't have that right in front of me to tell you who wrote it, but it's also an excellent mm-hmm. book, um, and we're going to talk a lot about the perspective of of what it's like um, to you know to have an encounter with a police officer, whether or not you're guilty of anything um, as a black person. And since neither of us or none of us are black, I think it was really important to include some some um, statements from that book, yeah. and that's by. Angela J. Davis, mm-hmm. excellent, excellent book. Like I highly, highly recommend all of these sources. I do think that's another great thing to preface quickly. We also, when we chatted, had that talk too of, hey, it's one thing for three white folks to talk about um, the police system in America. So right. we're going to try really hard to keep our biases in mind as we have this conversation. 
um, because it is a different situation for us to sit. I mean, two white men and, you know, a white blonde woman to sit mm-hmm. here and talk about policing in America. Like, what, what the hell do we know to some extent, you yeah. know? So, right. um, well, it's definitely something that's on our mind. A big part of it too, just, you know, just like with, with movements, movements like, um, civil rights is, is even though like white people aren't coming from the perspective of, of black people with these issues, it's, it is imperative that all people understand what they're going through because, because we all have to come together and make this better for Mm -hmm. everyone. Definitely. Yes. It's it's so important for us to speak about this. I would like to point out that it is a core principle of critical race theory to recognize the roles that race has had in our history. And I think that's, we're trying to use critical race theory in, I think we have, and I actually talked about that with Tobin, that we've tried to do that pretty consistently throughout this show to recognize all of the implications that every type of prejudice and everything has had within the context of our episodes. Um, And so it, with, the core of the issue of today's policing being um, the use of force against people of color. I think it, as you said, it is very important that we do recognize that, especially as we go into the second episode, um, focusing on that within um, policing in America. So, so let's move on to um, let's, let's we need to kind of go back in, in time right now. We need okay. to get in our time machine we need to figure out how did we even get to the place that we are now? Why did we create the police? Why was it even important? Because, you know, I can tell you pretty, I'm pretty sure that the crime rate was lower in 1829 in London than it is today. I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess at that. So the question becomes, why did Robert Peel start the police? And according to Britannica, Uh, It was because at the time in London, the rising crime statistics convinced him that legal reform should be accompanied by improved methods of crime prevention. In 1829, he carried through the Metropolitan Police Act, which set up the first disciplined police force for the greater London area. The first kind of like Um, organized policing force? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we had, there was, there's definitely policing forces before that, um, that, that goes back much further but but this was sort of like the first time it was like a job it was like a government right. created force that was supposed to live up to a really high ideal of of serving citizens and it was definitely 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 not supposed to be a standing army in which the king you know just sent out to 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 rile up the citizens like that was not at all the idea in fact they went through so many painstaking effort so much painstaking effort to to make sure that people knew that it was not a standing army at the beginning and and i want to figure out how we got to sort of this this vision of police now where they're in you know they're in the military uniform they're in the tanks knocking down door or mm-hmm. knocking down wall <laughs> you know it's it, it's it's crazy to figure out how how we got from here to there so let's let's go back so so we're 1829 right now um so this guy robert peel um they've been pushing the idea for decades it actually his, his dad had also uh pushed the idea um and it was this i they basically had not been able to do it for all that time because the british were concerned that um, a police would infringe on civil liberties mm-hmm. um, and, and that it would be thought of as a standing army. 
Um, well, and you look so, at the history of Great Britain and, you know, with the tyrannical monarchies that they've lived through for centuries and centuries, that's a justified fear, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> you know, you there is a, I think it's fair to be like, oh, well, are these just going to be the crown's goons again? Right, right. And and I feel like a lot of people that are against police now are basically just having that same fear. Like it's history repeating itself, you know, and, and we need to figure out if that fear is is logical or not. Um, so, so anyway, but back then, though, they assured people that this was not the intent of the police, that they would not resemble a standing army, that they actually would be public servants. Um, so they actually hired 3000 men in blue. And this is I love this detail, the blue uniform for police was chosen to be distinctly different from the traditional red military uniform that they used. Mm-hmm. So they, they chose blue so they would not be a military force. Mm-hmm. Got to stay away from those red coats. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, and, and one of the things that, that uh, Rise of the Warrior Cop talked about a lot is, is sort of like the good intentions behind when police were initially created, um, that, that even though they didn't want that perception of, of military, that they that he did feel like they should be they should get some amount of military training that was very like forward thinking um, as to later mm-hmm. on when they would be dealing with military type situations yeah um, and uh, and and that, that 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 there would be basically a military structure even if they wouldn't officially be a military force so you know you have things like you know sergeant <laughs> in the police force you yeah. know and that that's kind of carried over to modern policing. Uh, you know, things like that, uh, cadet, you know, things like that. Um, you know, it's, it's very like, it's very entrenched in, in military structure, although it is not officially in a military force. One, it's, it's, it's a good detail because it's a way for them to defend and support the citizens with legit training. So it's not just a bunch of people with, you know, pitchforks and rifles, basically. And we see that in some early, um, uh, American, quote unquote Absolutely. police forces where it's basically just people in the community that just gather. There was real, it, it took a while to get real like constructive police forces. And obviously in I London, think, they got to go in a lot quicker. I think those forces that you're talking about in early, early America. So pre like 1840s uh, were, were probably more like militias. Yes, um, exactly. Well, you know, I mean, during the slavery time, they were they were in charge of of capturing slaves um, mm-hmm. and uh, slave and patrols, them, right? And getting them back to you know the owners. So that is you know a, a very good reason that a, a, a modern day black person could see them in that similar light if they uh, if mm-hmm. they if they're resembling that. You know, if they if they feel like the police are targeting black people, um, which some might be. Uh, you know, that is a reasonable theory that you just kind of take us back to, you know, to, to those times when 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 pe- when black people were just property. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you, you, know, you so look the, at yeah. early policing and um, it, it really like the first American police force was in New York in 1845. But previous to that, it was basically private guns, militias that were hired by rich people to basically stop. It was basically rich people hiring poor people to stop other poor people from stealing their things. <laughs> like that—that's right. literally what policing was I mean, in the early 1800s. 
I mean, I, I won't take devil's advocate there. Like, is it different today? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, you know, I feel bad for police because they, because they are blue, they're a blue collar job. I mean, they don't get paid a crazy amount of money to do, deal with all the crap they deal with. Um, you know, so, so even, you know, they might be poor to middle class or whatever, policing other people mm-hmm. who are poor to middle class in order to protect property for the rich. Like, yeah. like there is an argument that a lot of what police are made to do is in those veins. I, I will say there is a line from one of uh, Bo Burnham's uh, songs, um, How the World Works in his new special Inside. And I, do, <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with this, but there is a line where it's like, um, every cop on the street is defending the pedophilic corporate elite. <laughs> and... Yikes! It's a it's a strong <laughs> line. It's a very strong, a strong sentence, um, but it it follows the theme. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and so like that is definitely you know the way that a lot of people look at police, um, whether that's fair or not, um, that we're going to deal with later. But but in, in initially, um, the it's it it was it was so quaint, like. Quaint. It was so quaint. What, what? How they? How they thought that police could remain at the beginning? So at the beginning, officers were told to avoid conflict when at all possible, to be civil and polite, uh, <laughs> to remember that they worked for the people and not against them. Mm-hmm. Now, again, personally, me, never been in trouble in my life. I have personally had a cop tell me to shut up. You know, like I have personally. Uh, had these these small little run-ins that have definitely affected my view of police and for no other reason but they felt the power to do so yeah you know so so again if we're going back to what why we started police to begin with i think it's important that officers here and and influential people here that Police were meant to be civil and polite they were meant to work for the people and they were meant to avoid conflict and not to create chaos themselves. Well, and similar to um, politicians, they're civil servants, they're public servants, and that's another reason why the police forces were created outside of the political sphere to keep it so that they are separate from outside um, influences, and their purpose is to solely serve the community. Right. But at first, when so the U.S. basically saw what was working in, in the U.K. and decided to do it themselves. Um, and when they started that first American police force in 1845, um, they actually were nominated by political bosses and appointed mm-hmm. by the mayor. So at first they were just they really were kind of yeah. the stooges of, of of the politicians in power. Yeah. Well, and a big part of it, too, is like during election season, basically within these precincts, how how they would do elections is these politicians, their voting districts align specifically with these different precincts of police forces. And so whoever was in that district, whoever was running for that seat in the House or the Senate, they controlled that precinct. And so they would basically use that police force to act as goons against the person running against them. And we see later on, they catch on and they split up the precinct. So it's not exactly lined up with voting <laughs> districts. But well, that's and, how and it, it was, was ran. It created all kinds of problems. I mean, it, so there, there's one thing I really like about it. Like at first, police were required to live in the community they patrolled. So that seems like a good idea in the yeah. way that like you don't you don't want to mess up your own community. So you'd be more likely not to, you know, to be good with it. The bad part 
was they were they were because they were in the community they would create these special deals with certain people in the community to let them slide but you know to be tougher on other people mm. and a lot of times that fell along racial guidelines you know right. if you were if you were irish and and you were and you were policing an irish community and you know and somebody uh give me another ethnicity <laughs> um, uh, um, i mean you could say polish honestly like eastern polish, european okay. the polish person you know you see you see coming through town or whatever and 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 you you would you beat them up you you'd question them you know you'd you do everything you could to ride them out of town because you didn't want you didn't want them part of your community. They were the troublemakers, yeah. you know. So there was all this like these special deals going on because police were given like complete free reign to do whatever they wanted to. And it's all, and it kind of goes to the fear that the British had to begin with was that it would be all basically to appease this grander power. Now, granted, it was at a smaller scale of communities and mayors and what have mm -hmm. you, but that was exactly the case in America. Well, and, and, and even though this much, it's much different now, um, we, as far as like the structure of, of, you know, who's responsible and, and rules being more uh, blanketed across the board, we do still actually have most police, you know, districts are citywide. I mean, we still have sort of like, like, all these little pockets of, of different police departments that are mostly responsible to their, to mm -hmm. themselves. So like, it, it's, it's crazy how these first, these first steps still re reverb today. And we'll talk about it in part two of basically how um, the police industry, how the law enforcement industry is split up into these different aspects and who trains who and how much, and uh, you know, just basically where all the police officer workforce is. Um, but really, it, it wasn't until the 1900s when police reform kind of became like people recognized, hey, something needs to happen, right? Yeah, um, you know, it, it became this major political issue. Um, politicians, which, you know, uh, this sounds right, created the problem, decided to solve the problem. No. <laughs> um, uh, and they removed the practice of appointments uh, of, of police and made the job a more formal, more formal one with standardized expectations, mm -hmm. specialized knowledge, um, higher personnel standards, entry requirements. I mean, early police officers basically had no training. I mean, you know, but so after a little bit, they were like, maybe, maybe we should kind of follow the UK standard a little bit more and, 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 uh, and actually make this a, a real job that, that has real accountability. Did either of you find in your reading, and I, I know I, in my research, I found that it, it wasn't only politicians who had power to control the police forces. It was also industry leaders, but I, I, I find this timing 1900 curious. Did you find in your research that that industry leaders were gaining more leverage over police departments than politicians. And so that's why politicians started to fight for reformation. I mean, I think it's all the same though, you know, I mean, yeah. usually, usually private industry supports politicians and, and then politicians use the police to support private industry. I mean, that's, that's how it, how it always has been and definitely was even more so back then, you know, so I think they're all basically. It's the same all a thing. game, folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the one of the first heroes of policing um, I found was uh, Berkeley Police Chief August Balmer. Um, he was he was uh, in in power from 1905 to 1932, and 
this guy, he was really forward thinking. He was really interesting. Uh, he pioneered the use of police radios, um, which they didn't have before that. Like they, they would just, they would just kind of show up. <laughs> <laughs> they would just kind of patrol and it's like, oh, there's a crime. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't too much more like, like developed than that. Um, yeah, and, uh, and uh, he pioneered police radios, uh, squad cars. He was the first person to sort of like, have this idea of like people, police being in a car versus just on the beat. Um, uh, police using bicycles, police using light detector tests, and even um, police crime labs, which is a huge part of policing now. Um, that's that's actually where my uncle um, had his career more in in like the photography and and some of the like crime lab stuff. Oh, that would be super interesting. It is, but it but it also carries a big burden. I mean, yeah. you see. You see terrible things mm-hmm. on a daily basis, you know, but, but it is, but it is a very interesting line of work to be in and you do a lot of good. Um, let's see. So, yeah. So while, while effective in many ways, uh, they also had an adverse effect though. Um, these, these new ad advents to police of making cops seem more separate. So, you know, so when they're in their car, they're not part of the community. There is a literal barrier here yeah, that's in, in a, a lot of times they didn't get out of their car unless something bad was happening. It seems like it, they really started to create the image of the police officer. Mm-hmm. Well, and as and as for as them as a separate force, not just somebody right. who's in charge keeping peace, but somebody who is sort of watching you from a perch. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that is that's what we have to kind of take back down and and get rid of in order for people to see police as the heroes they should be they they no longer became they they were no longer a part of the community they were the enforcers of the community exactly and then they didn't have to live in the communities that they were enforcing so you have these strangers that you don't know telling you what to do you know whether or not they're right it didn't really matter they became something separate something to fear something to at least be concerned about whenever you Mm -hmm. saw them and then um, we got so, to prohibition. <laughs> oh, prohibition really screwed up this country. <laughs> <laughs> what a dumpster um, fire. Just the entirety of it was awful. <laughs> it, so, okay, so if you don't know what prohibition is, basically um, a bunch of religious groups got together. They said uh, liquor is the devil and we need to eradicate it. Um, and so you can have that opinion. That's all great. But then how do you actually enforce it? Well, you use the police. And now suddenly the police have way more reasons to interact with, with regular people who are doing nothing illegal except for drinking um, and to mess up their night, to beat them up, to push them out, to arrest them, different things like that. And I would like to um, point out, though, that for a lot of the time, it wasn't ne- it wasn't the drinking of right. the alcohol that was necessarily illegal. It was the the selling and the production of alcohol. And yeah. so there is a, a really good story about uh, this group and they, it was a bar and they couldn't sell their alcohol anymore. So what they did mm-hmm. is they, it's a, the story of the striped pig. And so they took a pig and they painted black stripes on it and clients could pay $5 to see the striped pig. And with the striped pig, you get a free beer. <laughs> <laughs> and that was their loophole. Um, and so just to, 
create, you know, <laughs> give that context. <laughs> no, I love that. that, that no, it's, it's it's very creative. A Lincoln libertarian would really appreciate. The, oh, hundred um, <laughs> percent. Hundred percent. aspect of that. Oh, you're going to put um, the system against us? Well, guess what? We're going to go right around it with a striped pig. <laughs> so what's what's especially important about this time, though, is that so. Like you said, like during prohibition, it wasn't illegal to drink, but it was illegal to serve. So, so they could arrest the people who were serving. They could they could destroy the bar so that it wouldn't they wouldn't be able to reopen the next day. Um, and then the people wouldn't get arrested that were drinking. But if they re, but if they if they did something like spit in the cop's face or something like that, you know, then it would be an arrestable offense, and then and then that would cause even more people to get arrested. Now it's interesting to make a parallel between prohibition of, of liquor and the toughening um, cri- uh, cri- uh, toughening on crimes for, for drug use. Uh, because later on, we didn't take such a light approach at this because, we, because politicians that wanted to gain power learned their lesson with prohibition that if they were going to prohibit something, they had to make it something that wasn't as popular, was easier to demonize, was easier to um, associate with a, di- a person that was different than yourself. So that, so whether that was racial, whether that was a different, um, you know, socioeconomic class or whatever it was, they had to make it something that the other person did that you wouldn't be doing. So you could judge them, you could villainize them, and then you could actually arrest that person instead of letting mm-hmm. them go, which was a really kind of annoying part to the people who, who wanted a liquor to be, to be illegal. Like uh, they couldn't get the politicians to agree to arrest those people and villainize it. Right. What was it during this time that militar- militarization of the U S police force kind of started to take place with, like, I, I feel like if it's like, okay, we have to start enforcing these laws was it the same mentality in the nineties of, well, we need a more intense police force. It definitely started around this time. Like in the early 1900s, there was a militia act, which created the special circumstances that the president or different governors could authorize military protection um, using the national guard. Um, at the time it was meant to be just the national guard and they were meant to be in very particular places for a very exact amount of time. And then after the situation was was quelled. They they could that they, they, they would have to break them up and, uh, and remove the army basically and return society to normal. Um, that's really so, you know I feel like that's important wording is could authorize military protection. I feel right. like protection is like such a key word there where they're like it's not military enforcement it's military protection. Right, because they were they were scared so much that people would perceive these actions as an arming used against the people. Yeah, um, you know, so protection is is a very key word there because they're there for your protection, not to destroy you. Um, so yeah, um, okay. So so uh, the bonus army was um, it was it was it was an, it was the World War One veterans um, that were promised a bonus. Um, that, uh, that they would get like 15 years later or something like that. It was Mm -hmm. supposed to, it was supposed to be given later on for their retirement, essentially. Um, and it was promised by Congress as a big thank you for, uh, winning World War One. And when the depression happened, uh, 50% of Americans were either unemployed or underemployed and starving. Um, so 
So somebody had the idea, why don't we give the bonus army their bonus early so that they don't die? <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and so, and, and, and at the time Hoover, which was a, a very, very staunch conservative, mm-hmm. um, did not want to do this. Uh, he thought it was socialism. He thought it, he thought that the, the, um, the country would come back on its own. And so the army basically marched into Washington and there was a group of 43,000 demonstrators made up of 17,000 U.S. World War I veterans um, and their families and affiliated groups that just stayed in Washington, D.C. Wow. Uh, for, I believe, for months. I think it was like three months or something like that. Wow. They created these things called Hoovervilles, which were tents that were named after President Hoover that was supposed to embarrass him, that he wasn't helping them. Um, and instead of giving into it, which most politicians would have, he really believed in, in those, in those philosophies of not giving government help, even in this, this worst moment of American, in American history. Um, and he actually sent the military in to, to move these World War I heroes out of Washington, D.C. Wow. It's interesting wow. because this is, this seems like one of the first instances outside of um, the use of law enforcement against um, uh, former enslaved peoples. Um, this is one of the first instances of a, mal- a mass police force or military force used against the American people. Right, it was. It, 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 it actually was so shocking at the time that it's, it's one of the main reasons that Hoover was lost his reelection because of the, the backlash from this story. The public opinion turned against him because... Uh, this was done in such a severe way. Um, and, uh, and there's a great quote here uh, from, uh, from General Patton um, that in a later book that he wrote um, that uh, he had actually, uh, he had a disdain for public uprisings. Um, he blamed countries that had fallen in the past on military people being afraid to break heads when they needed to. And he openly recommended shooting rioters instead of taking them in, oh denying the right to habeas corpus. Yeah, and uh, and uh, which uh, denying, the, denying the right to habeas corpus, which is the right to be seen in front of a tri- judge, um, which again could go back to that idea of like the Punisher, you know, that whole idea of of not having somebody actually get their day in court, um, and uh, and 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 really like started this idea that I've actually heard a lot of police talk about that that. Uh, they, they'd rather take it in their own hands because they don't want people to get released on the technicality of the law. Well, un- unfortunately, it's not, that's not a choice that, that police are able to make. People deserve the right to court. And that was a huge part of what was with the discourse with George Floyd was whether or not those cops thought he was committing a crime, whether he was high, whether or not he was sober or whatever, that it, it is not a police officer's job to decide the judgment, right? Mm-hmm. So that that idea is it's just it doesn't even hold up according to our current court system. I would also like to say this is why Eisenhower is better than Patton and MacArthur. <laughs> just saying. Why? I don't get that. Why? Well, MacArthur, or not MacArthur, um, Eisenhower and Patton pretty famously did not get along and did not mm-hmm. like each other. And it's because mm-hmm. they just, their their differences in personality were so drastically different. Um, and uh, 
yeah, this this was just one of the personality traits that um, Eisenhower did not appreciate coming from Patton. Gotcha. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And to be fair to Hoover, um, he actually told them to back off. He actually told um, MacArthur um, to uh, to to pull the army out and to mm-hmm. not not hurt the the veterans. Um, but MacArthur ignored, defied the order and actually continued to beat up the protesters. Um, and so it was just, it was just this real black stain on American history. And even though it was one of the first, um, setups of, of, of indirect militarization, you know, it's, it's important to say that, that, uh, that there was no really one person or one party or one per one, uh, one political figure that, uh, that made the decision to militarize the police. And it actually mm-hmm. has been a really slow process over, over the decades, but this was definitely like, if you needed to have a starting point of like how that this the militarization started, that is a great place to start. Well, I, I think it's important to recognize too, as I said before, this was this is kind of one of the first instances where it is it's not against those who were enslaved and then formerly enslaved after um, the Emancipation Proclamation, and it seems like. After and you know historically, I don't know exactly the the timeline of the buildup of the militarized police, but it seems like it it really lines up pretty well with construction with the reconstruction period post Civil War going up into the World War One World War Two period of okay, well now we have all these freedmen that were formerly slaves. We need more police force. We need people to enforce this and basically impose our will on them. And then it just kind of expanded and grew and grew and grew into moments like this where it's mass protest. Oh, well, what do we do? Well, we have these militarized forces. Let's use them. But it was still supposed to be as a very last resort, too. Well, then. So the the Little Rock Nine is a really uh, famous case in American law and history um it's when they were uh the, there was a federal case that uh came from the supreme court that basically said that we had to uh desegregate the schools not no longer have uh, some schools for black kids some schools for white kids we had to uh integrate everyone together and have an equal um access to education um however a lot of governors didn't like this idea um they they had religion just reasons against it. They were racist, all these different things that they felt. Um, so um, in September 1957, as a result of that ruling, uh, nine African-American students were enrolled at Central High School in Little Rock, Rock Arkansas. Um, and the ensuing struggle between segregationists and integrationists um, caused the state of Arkansas and the federal government, Dwight, uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, um, and Arkansas Governor Oroville Faubus um, to basically get into a tiff, um, and uh, and the governor uh, ordered the Arkansas National Guard to surround Central High School to keep the nine students from entering the school because he was so against this idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, he used the military uh, to do this, um, a form of the military, the National Guard. And when President Eisenhower heard about this, uh, he didn't exactly know what to do because he thought back to the bonus march thing that we had just talked about, um, where you know it was it was seen as a really bad thing to use right. the military against any kind of um, American citizens. But in this case, he kind of 
I think he kind of saw that it wasn't against American citizens. It was against a governor who was using the military to defy a federal order. Um, So. Well, and at that too, they weren't, they weren't coming in guns blazing either. You know, it was, it was more of having that presence, presence. you know, it wasn't, Hey, come in and draw your guns at the school. So the kids can come in. It was show your presence so that these kids have the backup of the federal government and the military that, Hey, you deserve to be here. Show you're serious. Show that we're not turning yeah. into another civil war. I mean, you know, that's it's, how these kind of things was, start is when you don't. It was a legitimate, it, it was a, a legitimate um, use of military in a civilian cir- circumstance. That's when you want them to be used. Uh, you know, uh, President Eisenhower ordered the 101st Airborne Division, which sounds so impressive. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if you're if you're National Guard and you hear that they're coming, you're just like, okay, and I'm done. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> um, and uh, and thankfully, uh, th- uh, they basically stayed there, or a portion of them stayed there for the rest of the school year um, to get them through that and. I've never heard what happened after that, but I just assume that at some point they just stopped coming and so did the racists. Mm-hmm. So we moved on with with our lives. Well, I think it, the racists have, oh, the racists are still there. The racists will always be there. I think it was more of a thing where they just got quiet. Yeah, I mean, they know? moved on to something else. Or so, yeah, you know, whatever it was. They're like, well, <laughs> you know, let's start shift talk radio. our focus. <laughs> Started talk, AM talk radio. Um, okay. Um, so yeah, so I mean, it can be used for good reasons, but I think the really important takeaway here is that it was very something very specific that you could do in a, in a small amount of time, and then there was there was a there was a definite endpoint in which they would be taken out and right. and push you know and, and go home. Similar recently, uh, you know, to the January sixth thing, um, that was federal land, so you didn't you know so you didn't need as have jumped through as many hopes to in order to uh to get the peace there again but they sent in the national guard to put up the fences to to get the peace going again and then eventually they're going to be able to take that down once the 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 threat of of uh, insurrection is 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 gone and I, as as um somebody who was there during um the uh um inauguration i do want to stress the difference in feeling between the military presence and a police presence. You know, we've all been there during some big, you know, a political uh, or politician comes to town or, you know, the big sporting event and there's, you know, police blockades and all this. But it, it was an entirely different feeling walking around and seeing military uniforms and Humvees. And it, it was just a very, di- although it was peaceful and there was no um, harm being done, it, w- it was just a very different feeling. I, the, the only experience I have with this is I went to school in Boston during the bombing. Um, right. it, happened, it happened right next to me. I was working at the globe at the time. Um, uh, and I remember going to work the next day and all of a sudden in all the subway stations, there were armed like militia in there because they hadn't really? caught, caught him yet. And I remember thinking, this is so weird. And one of my friends that was with me, she's from Venezuela. And she was like, this is par for the course at home, baby. And I was like, this is, oh. I, I just, as an American had never experienced the militarization dressed like that. Wow. Um, 
But, and I appreciated their presence there, right? But it did remind me to, I felt very nervous and like scared mm-hmm. and weird and threatened. Um, yeah, it, it is, it is weird to think of the fact that some people live with the military like that in their country all the time. All the time, yeah. And we're not trying to do that mm-hmm. here. So we need to make sure that we stay away from that feeling also, of uneasiness. How often is that the U.S. military? Exactly. Right? Exactly. It was <laughs> uneasy. It was weird. Um, but yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily like that feeling. So we're officially in the 1950s. Um, we have to introduce a couple of really important figures here. So um, William Parker, uh, who ran the LAPD in the 1950s, uh, was the creator and the inspiration for the hit show Dragnet. Um, which you, I don't know. Has anybody ever watched Dragnet? Absolutely mm-hmm. not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember seeing it on TV Land, and I was pretty bored with it as a kid. But I did. I think I did watch an episode or two. Um, it, it really, really glorifies police. This um, is where I would like to point out to the listeners that Curtis is ten years older than me. Um, <laughs> so, so some references Nick, Nick night, baby. between Nick the two and I are going to be a little different. Okay. Mark, I, I know, I know about Dragnet. I love Lucy, Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> okay, but anyway, but yeah, so he, so it was just a big deal for the time, though, because because this is sort of the beginning of like police being part of the culture and 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 the culture, like like police seeing the culture on TV. And trying to act like it, and then TV culture seeing real police and trying to resemble it. So it, it's the which came first question that begins to happen because they sort of have this mm-hmm. cyclical um, a way that they're like emulating what a real cop is. And Did that's you the first time we're really seeing that? I wonder if previously to this, um, because entertainment before this was, you know, was, um, I guess I don't know when sound came to film um but but you know in terms of silent silent films and slapstick slapstick comedy slapstick comedy um i wonder if it was around this time where they're like oh let's create or attempt to create a serious image right i mean you know police were always kind of like ripe for making uh for, for writing a character and making them like the the hero you know it, it's 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 definitely very like cinematic to write a a, mm-hmm. a a police officer character or detective or something because there's all such kinds of situations they could reasonably get into so i think that's always been a part of it but the show dragnet was more of a it, it was kind of a it, it was almost boring in the way that it that it was trying to be as realistic as possible and 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 you know and like the famous quote from it is like just the facts ma'am like like get to the point right you know it was not meant to be like over the top like you know action sequences it was really supposed to be like real gritty cops see i would Um, i would love a police show where it's the first five minutes the crime happens and then the rest of the episode is just the booking process and the paperwork, <laughs> and the, you know. So you think you want that, but you actually don't. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so so this guy William Parker, that was the inspiration for uh, for Dragnet, um, and he basically took on a protege named Daryl Gates. And Daryl Gates, uh, according to Rise of the Warrior Cop, is pretty much the most important political uh, p- police figure. Um, that there is. Um, Gates would be put in charge of the LAPD during the Watts riots, um, which was a televised embarrassment to the mm-hmm. police 
made them look like like idiots essentially um and daryl gates basically never forgot this and he always wanted to um to he he wanted to bring the police back into a, a, a higher place a more militarized place he loathed the idea of community policing meaning like cops that just sort of talk to the community and all that he thought that they should be much more um separated much much more an authoritarian uh, figure forth. exactly yeah yeah um it sounds like he got and, really defensive like it was a, so. a very defensive reaction to that embarrassment right it was, it was basically a this is never going to happen again we're never yeah. going to be not ready for this again because watts riot uh kind of came out of nowhere as far as at least from the perspective of of people outside of course you know the watts riot didn't just happen out of nowhere it was it, it was there was a lot of animosity between police and people of color um that had been building for years um that just sort of happened to spark this one day and it's a really crazy story i have to tell this story because because it, it, it this is how easy it is for things to get out of control so this is what happened so california highway patrolman lee manikas uh, was on his motorcycle um, in an August evening in 1965 when a motorist pulled in, pulled up to him and indicated that the car ahead of them was weaving and that the driver might be intoxicated. So Maninkas pulled over the driver and it was 21 year old Marquette Fry, which had no license and was and was asked to perform a sobriety test. Supposedly the two joked around and it attracted attention since they were joking around um, from people that were passing by. But the mood changed when Fry's mother arrived. Uh, his mother basically started, you know, berating him. Um, I don't know if he, she physically hit him or anything, but like basically was just really angry that that he had gotten in trouble. Um, and because Fry was embarrassed that his mother was doing this, um, he started resisting getting into the police car. Um, and another officer arrived to help and and accidentally swung a baton um, into him. He wanted to hit him in the arm, but I guess it hit him in his eye and actually hurt him quite a bit. Um, and so Fry's brother then comes in, punches Maninkis, the, the officer, um, and and his mother jumped on his back, and all three were arrested. Now, the crowd came up after the fact, saw this instance that looked like police brutality, um, and and essentially started a riot. And this riot wasn't just like a block long. This actually, this this in, uh, this actually lasted for six days. Um, it, it covered forty six square miles. That's insane. <laughs> uh, crowds were dispersed, and then they would they they would run around the block and start again. <laughs> like like it, it just kept growing like a wildfire. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the state ended up having to dispatch thirteen thousand National Guard troops. Oh my gosh! Forty million dollars in losses. Wow. Thousand of damage and destroyed buildings. Uh, a th- over a thousand people injured. Forty three people killed. Four thousand arrested, and middle white America lost their minds because the 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 what people took from this was. This is the future of cities and therefore the future of America. Mm-hmm. And because it was happening at the same time of a lot of um, racial tensions in the country and a lot of in civil liberties, you know, being challenged and things like that, um, 
it sort of like got mixed up in all this on purpose from politicians trying to take advantage of the situation. Kara, would you agree that we're kind of seeing the same thing, that perception of what America will be because of what's been happening in Portland? Oh my gosh. Do you guys know on Facebook, I'm sure you see the same thing from like some more of my conservative family members, the, you defunded your police and now look what you got. Yeah. And it's just a bunch of statistics about things. And to be honest, I guess I don't know. I haven't looked into those statistics enough to know if there's any merit to that. But Curtis, you at the beginning of this episode, you've done the research. The crime is not trending the way that people seem to think it's trending. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that there's absolutely a perception amongst more conservative folks that look what's happening. That things are getting bad again. You're taking away the police, blah, 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 blah. Um, so whether it's real or not, that's the perception and perceptions can turn into, you know, movements Reality. very quickly. Yeah. But one of the, one of the um, studies um, in somewhere in this, in this paper that I wrote up mentioned that um, I believe it was in the eighties, that seventies or eighties, they, they did a, um, they did this study that said, do you think crime is on the rise? And like, it was like, everyone mm. was sure it was happening, but elsewhere. <laughs> right. I do want to point out too, there is a very real chance that we see a spike in crime now and coming up. I'm not sure that would be related necessarily to quote unquote defunding the police. I think that has more to do with the fact that we are coming out of a near you know recession from a pandemic with people losing their jobs. They are tired. They have depression. They have anxiety. Um, so I do think if we do see an uptick in crime, we're going to have to look into it and see, well, is this a result of allegedly defunding the police or did we just come out of uh, a situation in which people are broke tired sick and mm-hmm. lost loved ones and january 6th was a great example of of how we have different perceptions of reality right now and uh-huh. and that those different perceptions are going to create crime they're going to create tension until we get back to the same place again and i think one of the main reasons that it's important that we do this episode and we do it right and we tell the history is is that's a way to get everyone back on the same page. Yeah, so I guess we should just move right into um, August 1st, 1966. Um, that was a day that changed America forever, um, both in terms of policing, but also in terms of how safe we felt um, in our own hometowns. So um, August 1st, 1966, uh there was a killer uh charles joseph whitman i feel like there's uh, a really who, good choice of word killer because that's so specific to what this person was yeah i mean he 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 was just he 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 was a, how do you say this like it was he just seemed like he like he had no soul i mean he just how he did this it seemed like it was always a part of him um you know yeah, like you, was... you hear this about a lot of killers. No regard for human life. No, so, none at all. So what what did this man do? What happened in Austin, Texas, 1966? Oh, he became known as the Texas Tower Sniper. Um, he, he basically took um, some high-powered rifles and barricaded himself in the uh, tower above the University of, of Texas at Austin. Yep. Um, For those who don't just, know, um, Kara and I both live in Austin. In the center of UT campus, there is a giant clock. I guess, does it have a clock on it? Yeah, it has a clock on it. <laughs> it's a giant clock tower that just towers over campus. And it's, and it's right in the center. 
and you can see it from um, the back of the football stadium from it's it's just right there. I mean, you know, maybe he just did it there because that was the the most opportune place or something, but it was also sort of the center of of, you know, focal point of of that part of town, of that of that campus. Um, and he just started shooting people. He killed three people on the way up. Um, he went up 28 floors um, to the tower um, and uh, and he f- fired at random people. There was no there was no like, you know, certain people he was focusing on or anything. He just he just started firing, firing on random people um, for 96 minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. He was able to do this. 96 uh, which, minutes. Yeah. I mean, this was a movie length amount of time that he was able to do this. You can make a movie out of this in real time. And it would be correct. Well, yeah, you could you could literally make a movie out of this, and that would be the correct amount of time for the film. But I feel like that's no. one of everyone's worst nightmares: is calling the police and no help comes. Well, and and how innocent people were then. You know, some people knew that something was going on at the time, mm-hmm. but they didn't realize the type of firepower he had and how good of a shot he was. Um, he was shooting people that were in. Um, looking through windows like a block away or a couple blocks away. Like, I mean, it wasn't like just people that were just, mm-hmm. you know, hanging out on campus. These were people like people described uh, getting shot um, or shot at um, in like all these storefronts that were nearby and things like that. You know, people didn't think that they would, they were in the line of fire for quite a while. And it was really scary too, because like one of the stories is somebody drops dead and then somebody else came over to help them and was also shot because they decided to help that person. You know, they didn't think that this was was happening the way it was. They thought they had a heart attack or something. You know, it was mm-hmm. so quick. It was so out of nowhere. Um, well, we have to keep and, in mind, like, some this has never really happened for something like this in terms of a mass shooting. This is new. No one was prepared. No one was expecting it. You know, it's unfortunate that we live in a time now where we see it on the news and it's, oh, there's another one. But back then, the people yeah. weren't prepared. The campus wasn't prepared. And the police were not prepared. Yeah, at this time, uh, this was the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. Um, it took 18 years after this for somebody else to surpass the the death toll. So, like, just you know, nowadays it takes a week, right? But you know, but back then this was a generational scar that happened. So, if you ask anyone that was alive um, and you know, and at least able to read the news during this time, um, they'll tell you they remembered this. It was all over the news and the, the 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 basically the main story that ended up coming out of it was the police weren't prepared how could we not prepare the police for this kind of thing um and and what ended up happening just to kind of wrap up the the story itself is um there were a couple of um total heroes that were on the police department. There were a couple of people that were not police, but that were helping them. Um, I want to say their names just because we said the shooters names and I always hate using their name and not, not the heroes. Um, it was uh, officer Houston McCoy and Ramiro Martinez. Ramiro Martinez. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and they actually, they didn't have the firepower to shoot that far. They couldn't get over to the to the shooter because he was picking off people really like exact with exact uh precision do you um, know so they actually ran home to get to get more guns that they, were in their personal wait, they collection. got like their own rifles 
Yeah. So like wow. so one of the students said, I have a rifle at home because they were hunters because this is Texas. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so they said, well, you know, that's better than what we have. And so they ran home. And, you know, the other interesting thing about this story, too, is is at the time radios being used by police were kind of a new thing. Um, so so apparently they only had like a dozen radios for the whole department. Um, so, so they were kind of connected by radio, but, but they were getting things, information late, you know, so mm -hmm. sometimes some of the people that were arriving figured out what was happening in the moment as it was happening, not, not knowing what they're getting into. So yeah, when they got to campus, a lot of them didn't r realize, like I'm sure dispatch, you know, there's a shooter, you know, something going on, but it sounds like no one really had a clear idea of what they were walking into. So there was no command center, there was no plan, there was no communication. Um, and uh, and finally, they were able to basically just uh, use some underground tunnels that somebody, a student knew about um, to get close enough. They they walked up the stairs um, to, to to get to the where the shooter was and uh, and they were able to, to put a, a bullet in his head. Um, so so Could it ended. Imagine how terrifying the walk up that staircase would be like yeah, it, it, it's a oh. horror scenario yeah it's horrifying and so this really led into this bigger idea of crime is out of control it is escalating and if we don't arm the police we're gonna have more situations like this they're not entirely wrong about that they actually were pretty much right you could make an argument that you know when you're in an arms race you're kind of challenging each other to getting to the next step. Uh, remember there was a police officer on the show, police, uh, things, please see the podcast that we've mentioned a couple of times, um, that was in, uh, the UK that, that said that, that she hopes that the UK never, um, arms all of their police because she was, you know, she would be afraid that that would make the criminals then, then arm themselves. So there is that argument that I think holds a little bit of water. Um, but, but Americans, they freaked out. Um, and I, I think rightfully so that the police weren't ready here. So, you know, you, you can kind of take either side of that argument or you can even go right in the middle and say, you know, maybe some police should be armed for these situations such as SWAT teams, but maybe not all police. I don't know. I think it's too late now. I mean, America's mm -hmm. armed, right? I mean, we're never going to unarm our police. I mean, either way, it sent the country into a frenzy of how do we stop this? And it just seems like it's rising and rising and rising, which was the case in some circumstances, wasn't the case in others. But when fear takes hold of the country, which we've seen it do time and time again, people panic and they look for a solution. And in this case, the solution was heavier policing, militarized policing. Like one of the arguments that the book makes that I agree with is nobody's arguing that we don't want that, that that police shouldn't exist for these situations right just that maybe they should be sent out after you know after it's discovered it's that bad not necessarily send them out at, at every situation mm -hmm. just in case because then you have these people who want to be heroes but there aren't needed there's not needed to be right. heroes because the situation isn't an active shooter or something crazy like that yeah, you want to avoid them going in and overemphasizing the danger that is present. Obviously, in this instance, there was an incredible danger present and we needed militarized action to take care of it. 
that's not every situation, however. And it, it seems it's like most. it's utilized more often in unnecessary situations than it is in necessary situations. Right. And so then we get to the, the Warren court years. And, you know, I had always heard the Warren court, but I actually never understood what it meant before this. So so basically, uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren was was the head of the Supreme Court mm-hmm. um, in, in during this time period. And and there was this unimaginable tragedy that had just occurred. They gained a lot of attention. Um, and it was also matched with rising crime rates. Uh, there was a whole counterculture that was that was starting. Um, you know, that was against Vietnam um, that started a little later. And and uh, this idea of, you know, whether or not consensual uh, doing of drugs was what should be an American right or if it was ripping apart society. And and Chief Justice Earl Warren is kind of a liberal hero um, in the way that uh, he started beating back some of the things that he perceived as being attacks on personal liberty um, from um, politicians and from the law and therefore through police. Uh, so we had some really important cases that were passed during this time um, that that created what the police are today. So for example, um, let's see, so like there's Weeks versus U.S., which basically said um, that um, illegally search evidence is not admissible in court. So in other words, a cop can't just break in without a warrant and then and then it's and then use that that evidence against somebody mm-hmm. um although that has been partially returned later on um i think in, uh, robinson versus uh california in 1962 is a big one because i feel like that one has a lot of racial bias within it and that the, mm-hmm. the court ruled that you couldn't incarcerate somebody just for being addicted to drugs and it was a violation of their eighth amendment rights uh, mm-hmm. similar to the, as and I'll say it again, the, the war on drugs of the difference between the crack cocaine and the powder cocaine, which demographic do you think they targeted with mm-hmm. that, you know? Absolutely. There was Matt, uh, Matt versus Ohio in 1961, in which police showed a fake warrant um, to get into something, and then they wanted to use what they found against the person um, that had it. Um, I guess... I wrote down here was illegal porn, but I actually don't really remember what that means. I think I think it might have been homosexual porn, um, but Probably. I actually, but but I don't remember. Um, but anyway, but the court ruled that the Fourth Amendment uh, protects people uh, from state searches federally um, through the Fourteenth Amendment. So it kind of a, a elaborated on what was already in the law. So the the next one, nineteen sixty four, um, the Miranda rights, which is something that people yeah. associate with with police quite a bit. Um, it's the right, you, you know, you have a right to remain silent and all the, and the whole speech that they have to legally give. Um, the Miranda rights were established in 1964 that they must be read um, upon uh, police questioning. And uh, it was really unpopular at the time from conservatives as, as they said that they were, that, that they were protecting the criminal. And that, why? And, but, why? Because they were given due process? Because, because it made cops hard, cops jobs harder. Um, it like, I mean, you know, I remember my uncle saying, you know, kind of like, like kind of this feeling of like people were oh, one more step. Yeah. Like, like, like here's, here's one, you're making, you're going to make my job one step harder. Yeah. You're going to protect the criminal. And, you know, and if you are a good person, like my uncle, like a lot of cops, you know, I can understand that feeling. Like, you know, that you are only putting away truly bad people. The problem is 
not every cop is good is good right. and not every cop can perfectly know who is good or who is bad and you have to do it across the board even if it's annoying even if it's sort of bureaucratic and like all that um you know in the and the red tape to needs to be there to ensure that justice is taking place properly like you can't right. you can't steps. skip steps <laughs> yes. like if you look at every cop movie and every cop show it's always like it's like you know damn it uh you know the the, the uh, the mayor's on my ass, and he, you know, he, and he, he once, you know, he, you know, he got mad at me because I blew up that building in order to save that that orphan, and like, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, I don't want to get caught up in all this red tape, and you know, like, like mm -hmm. that is like the hero cop is the one that gets through the red tape and does yeah. his job anyway. But the perception that that is extra is wrong because you have to do it within the confines of the law; otherwise, you are not the good force that you want to be. Yeah. Another really important one um, that actually expanded the Fourth Amendment was Katz versus U.S. in 1967. Um, and for the Fourth Amendment, no unreasonable search and seizure um, must have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, basically, it expanded the Fourth Amendment to long, no longer just be physical intrusions. And with the advancement of technology, such as wiretapping, this was very important. Right, and it also set up the protection of people's like internet yeah. uh, histories and and library, uh, you know, rentals and things like that. One of my favorite things about Montana libraries is they actually get rid of all records of what you rent of what you borrowed really? like, after so much time, so that they can never be asked to give your history mm -hmm. because they think wow. of your privacy is such a big deal. You know, and, that, and that's not protecting the criminal. That's protecting everyone. Like that, that, that's not the business of the government. Mm -hmm. On the, and yeah, the, the government does not need to know how many times no. I rented Fifty Shades Grey. Well, but that's interesting though, because the, the Constitution never once mentions the word. It never uses the word privacy. There is no. You have no constitutional protection to privacy. Now, there are states, like Montana has a right to privacy in the state constitution, but there is no federal, um, there is no federal right to privacy within the United States Constitution. So it's interesting that they were able to expand that within the Fourth Amendment. Mm -hmm. And this one is kind of contrary to, to a lot of the beliefs that Warren had, but Terry versus Ohio in 1968 expanded police authority, um, which please conservatives quite a bit, and it ruled that stop, detain, and frisk was okay as long as the officer had a reasonable suspicion that the person is currently or is about to engage in criminal activity. <laughs> oh, boy. That, that was a huge part of what we talked about, stop and frisk, is with yeah. the participants in New York when this argument was going on, is how in God's name are you supposed to prove that you knew someone was going about to commit a crime? Unless you see them pull a weapon and advance towards someone. Mm -hmm. um, the the language, to some extent, in a lot of these cases, is made to be interpreted because you do need to allow police to be able to do their job to some extent, but mm -hmm. it also allows a lot of room for abuse. Yeah. Well, and it, we saw it with the, when we were talking earlier about how the idea of having more police officers really did not change the amount of crime similar to that stop and frisk once it, it's it is largely no longer used um, in new york 
once they stop it, the, the amount of crime did not change. It did nothing no, to stop not. crime. It did mm-hmm. all it did was intrude into people's lives. When all it did is is make officers the enemy. Yes, exactly. People. That's not because community policing. You can over police people. I mean, even if you're just not even just not the police, if you're just anyone, if you're a principal or whatever, like you can over intrude into people's lives, and you get diminishing returns on on stopping crime or whatever you're trying to stop but you incrementally increase the animosity that people feel toward Mm -hmm. you you know so you have to have that balance um so you know getting back to to daryl gates too like he basically took the the ideas from uh you know from what was going on at the time things like the austin sniper um and he decided to create swat um and it is a really little fun little anecdote thing uh, from from the book um, Rise of the Warrior Cop, and, and and it's actually from his uh, autobiography. Further is from Gates' autobiography. Um, so Gates supposedly went into his upper officer's office and said, um, uh, "I've decided to name my new um, my my new force SWAT. It stands for Special Weapons Attack Team." And his boss like flipped his lid. He said, "There's no way that you are ever going to use the word attack." in a police like force and so he thought about it for a second and gates said how about swat special weapons and tactics and his boss was like no problem that's fine (laughs) like like i this like i just i i think it's hilarious these like two grown men just going back and forth about what to call their new cool like what are we to call our cool club like you know (laughs) what it's like it's like the little rascals like the he-man woman haters club you know (laughs) but but he thought this was really important like he really uh, you know who cares what swat is called like you know but he thought it was like he knew he was creating something that was going to last for a long time that was that was uh that was going to be his legacy and so and so uh yeah so swat was created and it was it was it was tested out um, in Los Angeles, um, and uh, and at the time, even though he wanted to use um, fully automatic weapons, uh, the standard cry was that LAPD is supposed to be a civil police force, mm-hmm. and that their job is to relate to the community, not to put a, put on combat boots and assault the community. So he, even though he was able to create this special force, he was still being pushed back to to not let it resemble a military presence. Well, it's even funny, the, too, because even the 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 motto to protect and serve was created through the LAPD. So that was that was their entire image that they were trying to build off of. And it seems like the SWAT team was very much so not that. <laughs> so uh, absolutely. And at the same time, President Johnson was the first person to really get tough on crime. Um, he just he. He he decided that he was going to banish crime, uh, whatever that means, um, and uh, he 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 had had a, re- a blue ribbon report um, created that uh, that uh, did some good things. It actually um, established a national phone number for emergencies, which was the precursor to nine one one. So at the time, there was no nine one one. Do we know when nine one one became a thing? So according to this, nine one one was established February sixteenth, nineteen sixty eight. The first nine one one call in the United States came from Haleyville, Alabama, and was made by Alabama Speaker of the House Rankin Fight on February sixteenth, nineteen sixty eight. 
to Tom Beville, a U.S. representative. Okay, so so this report also recommended um, decriminalizing drug abuse and act in public drunkenness. Um, minority outreach bureaus within major police departments, uh, the establishment of multiple crime and justice uh, research institutions, family planning assistance, re uh, recommitting to desegregation, funding for drug abuse treatment, and gun control. So basically, most of that never happened. <laughs> yeah. But but, it, but this first. This first report recommended that we go those routes. Like, it, it seemed like they had a lot of progressive ideologies in there. Well, and then critics called it liberal hand-wringing and criticized it for not going hard enough against the bad guys. Quote, for a war on crime, there wasn't enough fighting. But that's what... So, uh, who Who are the bad guys? Exactly. You know, like, well, I don't know. There was this constant, there was this constant effort to use war terminology in order to get people to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. So, so if somebody hears there's a war on crime, but the way we're going to fix it is through, you know, uh, drug abuse treatment and gun control, like someone on the conservative side, like it's just, it's just not going to do it for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Johnson created what would become the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, um, and uh, and then in 1968 uh, there was a crime bill, um, a precursor to the later crime bill, um, in which Republicans seized on the fears of crime, uh, which though it wasn't necessarily connected to the broader civil rights movement, um, did actually happen at the same time. So a lot of people, when they're watching the news, they started associating the civil rights movement. With the with the war on crime, um, mm -hmm. probably because of some amount of racism. The book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, was interesting in the way that it talked a lot about this. It talked. It, it said that the topic of drugs was kind of genius. It, it it used the idea of prohibition of alcohol, but it took it to the next level. Drugs were the perfect way to draw all elements together, of of the protests. The riots for, you know, for protests about like um, Vietnam, the riots uh, uh, that were associated with different things of race relations and and uh, and, and 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 desegregation, um, hippies, crime, like it it was just sort of the perfect way to marry it all together and create the other person that wasn't middle America white people. Mm -hmm. um, and quote, Nixon's genius wasn't hammering these images together into a rhetorical sword. People steal, burn, and use drugs, not because of root causes in society, but because they are bad people and that they should be punished, not coddled. So it became not just a drug user is has lost their way. It became this person uses drugs, therefore they are not like you. It's it's similar to the idea of I mean you think about ho how many um, homeless people are veterans how many drug addicts are veterans and it seems like they largely get ignored a lot of the times when it comes to the conversation about drug use and you know heroin use and whatnot because that kind of overshadows everything else. But again, in my opinion, this isn't even a police issue that we're talking about here. This is. Uh, an addiction this is an illness this is whatever so the fact that we even got police involved in this was just a mistake from the get-go 
And, and that's why it's really troubling, I think, to like read the history about this and how the war on drugs really amped up police use. Because it's like, what the heck do you guys have to do with this situation? What well, all comes well, back it, to perception. It's the perception of the whole issue is, is drug users are not sick people. They're not people who need help. They're not people who can recover from their drug use. They are criminals. What do cops do? They stop crime. Well, and also we, we literally abolished mental institutions and help, you know, these mm-hmm. institutions and said, actually, police, this is your problem now. You're going to take these people and you're going to bring them to jail. Mm-hmm. So again, this whole situation really, really revved up police involvement with the community and with the mentally ill folks simply because we said this is your problem now and that should really irritate everyone like that should upset people that we put this burden on police um yeah they they, they didn't really have a place here to begin with in my opinion well we're seeing it, it ha- go ahead curtis sorry and it happens all the time too you know like so so joe biden just uh decided to ban uh, menthol cigarettes because and he did oh. it for a good reason because you know uh, a large portion of black people are smoke those and he wanted he, he the basically scientists said if you ban this then you will save this many lives mm-hmm. so it's for a good reason however <laughs> we should not be banning things like in america no. uh, i mean very few things should actually be banned uh, even if they're bad for you even if they're bad for society like i i'm really against that because what happens is and this is actually something that i read on a couple of police websites they said that, like, get ready, guys, because we are now are going to be enforcing this law against menthol cigarettes. And once again, it's another thing that's that's prohibited that puts us as the bad guys. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in which society should be dealing in different ways. So politicians should not ban things because all of that creates is more animosity toward police. It's harder to enforce. It looks good on them, but it, it really starts breaking down society and separating people into a us and them, you know, like what will be illegal tomorrow in which puts a different type of person on the other side of that blue line. Mm-hmm. Well, how many videos pop up on the internet now of a police officer enforcing some kind of menial law, whether it be, you know, stopping kids from skateboarding on private property or stopping somebody from smoking menthol cigarettes and it escalates and it turns into this thing and then all of a sudden and there are of course there are circumstances where the cop is the bad guy but how many times is it where it's just the cop just they just have to enforce the law they're just doing their job and they turn into the bad guy because of that right and i think there was up and it's really scary now because we're kind of at a breaking point up until now police kind of had a little bit of leeway where if there was a stupid law they could they could decide to kind of not enforce it as much mm-hmm. um you know and like for example i forget the person's name that was that was killed in this instance it was a black person that was killed um but it but the person got pulled over because there was uh something hanging from their mirror and in this city there was a code that said you couldn't have anything hanging from your mirror like in the old days a cop could have seen that decided not to pull them over because it's a stupid law and it's a waste of their time and and they could have went on their way but but now because of things like body cams which i i generally approve of but in this case like it could be a negative you know they have less they have less wiggle room of like what they can interpret as as passable versus they have to pursue like if they see it they have to pursue that which starts a whole you know snowball effect of different things that can that can escalate from that point like can they no longer use their judgment of as we said before, 
is this affecting the community in a negative way? Is this doing something to harm somebody else? Therefore, oh, well, I'm going to put my efforts towards something else that is more necessary. Well, and that, that brings up an interesting point. I was watching a video, um, and it was uh, Trevor Noah, and he was speaking kind of along, he was talking a little bit about like the ticket quotas and how it's not always necessarily a race thing. And Curtis, you've touched on this a lot in previous episodes of class has a lot more to deal with things. And he pointed out the fact that you don't see cops sitting on the side of the street ready to pull over people in Malibu. You know, it's it's always in these right. poorer, more rural areas where they can just pull people over left and right. Um, but, but also things like car registration. I have to make an appointment and yeah. take time off work to go do that. Do you think some person who is working three jobs and supporting their family or is going to be able to easily take time from their cushy office job to go do these things? So it does it. And then, and then on top of making it difficult to do things like car registration or what have you, then you encourage police with a quota to come down on that. Yeah. It's just a recipe for disaster, honestly. And it's also like, you know, get a life a little bit. <laughs> like, come on. Well, but at the same time, too, like, I, I hate the videos of the people where it's, you know, the cops, like, pulls them over and, don't you have something better to do with your day, blah, 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 blah. Which I get, like, I understand it's annoying, but to a point, to a point, it like, they gotta keep yeah, their the job. No. If you're speeding, you should be pulled over and you should, you know, you should be I mean, reprimanded. How, how many of these things that, you know, we just, like loathe cops and how they do things. Like how many of these things are just part of a job that has been established by politicians. Exactly. And, and the politicians don't have to deal with it, but the police do, you know, that's why I have a lot of empathy for cops because a lot of them, they don't want to be doing what they're doing. Well, yeah, because they really have to. I would be curious to hear from police officers if, if they feel it's a waste of time as well. Like if they feel like their efforts should be put towards something better. Cause I can't imagine they love the fact that they have, you know, just have to sit on a highway and you know issue tickets all day to people who are just trying to get to work or whatever it may be. Well, that's yeah. why I'm glad we're doing this history as well because you, we, as we've gone through this and Curtis again, you did such a great job with this research, but we really can see how a lot of police, you know, policies and things like that were very reactive. Like there's just this lead up, and it happened, and it happened, and a lot of it was like things like the the you know austin shooting like it was responses to things um or the war on drugs whether that's true or not they they, the explanation was it was a response to Mm -hmm. drugs um and we can really see how all these incidents have just ramped up the how police have to be involved in our communities so it when we talk about things like institutionalized racism or systems that are, are problematic we're talking about this like the system has been slowly built and built and built and built um, to make sure that police are invasive, to make sure that they have to be involved, to make sure that they, you know, they're coming down hard on crime. Um, and so I'm glad we're doing this because it does help provide a little mm-hmm. bit of empathy for cops and the system that they have to work within. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a racial thing, too. Is I think it's important because I think, you know, a lot less white people are worried about this. And they should be, though, because, you know, just because they're not affected by it right now, mm-hmm. because their neighborhood isn't, you know, being over-policed or over you know, having too many laws or whatever set up, they're stupid. Like just because it's not affecting you now doesn't mean it won't affect you later. So the fact that, you know, there, there's this person who happens to be black, who is, who is, you know, dealing with this and saying, Hey, 
we have to look at this right now. You know, that that's that's your wake up call. You know, somebody yeah. is being affected and somebody's waving a flag saying, look at this. And it is your like responsibility to look at it now before it's too late. Right. Abuse of power easily transcends race. <laughs> it does. Um, so let's go back. So, so, so yeah, so we're, we're in the Nixon era. Uh, they won, they were really effective in, in pushing this idea. Um, so, 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 so they, they really even went further and they targeted drugs because it was something that if they could sex, successfully stop and they really believed that they could stop it, like within their administration, um, if they could stop it, they would be given the credit for like saving America, which, you know, which like, unlike normal boring crimes like burglary and murder and stuff like that like you could never truly stop it it would always keep going right so but with drugs you could you could claim that that you that you won it was sort of like that mission accomplished banner that that bush hung up like they wanted to do that mm -hmm. mission accomplished drugs gone and you know, they didn't know it was going to be here forever well it's it's interesting too because it seems like nixon had to directly connect the use of drugs to crime whereas reagan there there was legit crime the cartels were real like the cartels mm -hmm. were legit and i don't know what necessarily like um drug trafficking and what it was like during the nixon era but it seems like the propaganda and the narrative they had to create around quote-unquote drug crime was different right and and to some extent you know what wasn't true became true because when you when you over police something it becomes a black market and it actually becomes worse right if you if you do it in the wrong way um so so in washington dc nixon had this idea that because it was federal land that he could actually just do things without the need for congressional approval so he he went back and right. did ideas um like no-knock warrants that had not approved been approved nationwide and he decided to try it out in washington dc um, and so, uh, and so he always, he also tried to do things like strip away attorney client privilege. Um, wow. he tried to strip away, um, uh, the privilege between, um, priests and, and the, the person and, uh, the, the person being charged, um, and doctors and <laughs> he tried to, the privilege of talking. Oh, to like, like a, a, a confessional say. with a priest. Yeah. He tried to, so wow. there was some, there was some protection for that. He tried to strip that away. Um, he tried to expand wiretapping because, as we know, Nixon loved to wiretap. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and they even came up with an early precursor to California's current terrible law, three strikes and you're out, um, which is basically says no matter what it is, uh, if you do three felonies, you get life in jail. That has been stripped Wait, down in some states. California um, still but, has a three strike rule. Yeah, as far as I know, unless it like just recently got changed. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and it's actually it's actually uh, still in in on the books in a lot of states, but but a lot of states over time has have taken it down so that not just any felony can trigger your lifetime sentence or something. You know, right. it has to specifically be like murder or something really bad. Um, but yeah, as far as I know, it's still in the books. Um, so Nixon set out a PR campaign to tie heroin, to, like, heroin it was like the big one, uh, to crime. So uh, so he could motivate the public and basically scare them to give him more power to solve the problem. Um, so he uh, so he asked um, BNDD, 
Um, let's see, what is that? I don't remember what the Indian Real quick, was. it's very interesting, the, the use of fear throughout public policy in America. We saw it with the Red Scare. We saw it with the Lavender Scare. We see it with the Drug Scare. It's, it's creating fear of a thing that's, it's there, but it's not really there to just blow it up in citizens' minds of it's the scary thing that we need to block away. And, so and when we say PR campaign, we really mean like they literally use a PR service yeah. to, you know, to make a campaign to convince people of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 scary that it, that it's a tactic that is used in what is supposed to be, you know, a free democratic republic, you know, and. And so Nixon used the BNDD, which is the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, um, <laughs> um, to arrest low-level, easy-to-find heroin addicts to beef up the numbers um, so he would look better. And there so, was this interesting thing that – go ahead. They, so they would probably just like go on the streets and just find someone shooting up heroin and like, all right, <laughs> get the paddy wagon. Easy. They actually preferred the low-level people because – they could beef up their numbers versus going say for the source that sold them that right. because that would only be one arrest. And even though that would actually solve the problem more, they did not want that one arrest. They wanted the 20 people they sold it to because mm-hmm. that would look better on their books. And then let's sell it to the next 20 people. Like <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Um, let's see. And then, okay. And then in 1971, Nixon made a speech after his PR campaign calling drug abuse, quote, public enemy one. And he asked for emergency powers and new funding to, quote, wage a new all-out offensive. So you get this military wording again. You know, it's, 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 it, it creates this idea that, that, that there is an enemy and they are people who are addicted to drugs. Um, and it's, it, really, it really angers me when they use those terms because people addicted to drugs are not the enemy. They are fellow human beings, fellow Americans. They are in more need, at least as much, but probably more need of help than the average person. And yet they're being called the enemy. Mm-hmm. It just God. <laughs> really irritates me. It's one of the main reasons I don't like Nixon. And Dalen, can we please play the clip from Nixon? Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize for you the meeting that I have just had with the bipartisan leaders, which began at 8 o'clock and was completed two hours later. I began the meeting by making this statement, which I think needs to be made to the nation. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. So yeah, so as you heard in that clip, he declared drugs a national threat. Uh, he said society has a few judgments that are too severe, few penalties too harsh uh, for the men who make their livelihood in the narcotics traffic. Um, so Nixon expanded the program to give funding to police stations from federal money in order to encourage local police departments not to argue against his ideas and to try them out whether or not they were lawful. Public enemy number one, I consider this problem so urgent to launch an offensive the whole public enemy number one thing, it seems like a continuation of the whole us and them. It, it seems like every, we see this reactionary thing happening, like you said, Kara, 
And it's this thing where every single time that reaction happens, it draws that line, that thin blue line of us and them. Language is really important here because politicians were purposely using warlike language to start making us think that there was an enemy um, in our midst. It's not unlike, uh, you know, McCarthy did with, um, with the Red Scare. It's not unlike what we saw with the Lavender Scare. These are people different than you. You don't relate to them. Therefore, they're your enemy and help us fight them and eradicate them because America would be better without them. Um, that is always a bad message. It's always uh, very anti-American, but it is used over and over again throughout history. It is going to be used in the future. I'm sure it was used in the mm -hmm. Trump administration. Um, you know, so it's really important to, to when you hear politicians speaking and they use words like uh, launch an offensive and they're yeah. talking about American citizens who are sick, <laughs> you know, that they have a they have a an addiction to something well um, and regardless of opinion of whether you know addiction is a choice addiction is an illness you know whatever it may be and science has shown it is an illness it is a genetic thing um the use of the words launch an offensive on the american population regardless is a scary thing to hear from a president yeah it should make you gasp if you, you know that it, there is no like F yeah, that go Nixon. Like, no, like that should be like, no, 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 that's wrong word, wrong terminology. And so we see these reactions. We see these examples of the use and the, uh, the expansion of military use and military tactics within the police force. With that, Nixon launched his war on drugs. And going into the next episode, we're going to expand this to three parts, I think. Um, going into the next episode, Nixon's war on drugs takes its first victims. And that is where we'll pick it up in part two dun, of dun, Good dun. Cop, Bad Cop. Um, if you stuck around this long, this is, I think, one of our longest episodes we've ever done. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Um, you know, like we said at the beginning of the episode, we took a hiatus for a couple months and we are coming back strong <laughs> we're coming back hard and i hope you enjoyed it um curtis kara going into the first episode of this series what what have you been your what are your thoughts thus far i just think it's really important for us to understand how we got to where we are so like i said i'm really glad we're doing this episode because you know we really want to talk more about um police in america and their role in our society I think it's really difficult to do that without knowing how exactly we got here. So um, I'm glad that we're learning about this. I'm glad that hopefully if you, you're listening, you're learning about it with us. And then we can have a much more nuanced and cohesive conversation about what's actually going on because we've mm -hmm. got the history to back it up. And I think it's important, too, that we think of like police are not the enemy. Yeah. Um, we created exactly what police are doing now. Mm -hmm. So. It is our fault if there is something broken in the police system and it's our responsibility to fix it. And the only way we're going to do that is by looking at how it was created, why it was created and moving forward with that knowledge. So I'm, I'm really excited to tell the second part next time. And I do want to quickly address the actual content and the, the history and the context that we are covering in these two parts of this series. And for those of you who have 
been longtime listeners and have listened to it, all of our episodes, I, I know we, in, especially in this series, we are covering a lot of stuff that we covered during the queer's history. We covered during private prisons. Um, but I, I think it's important to recognize the fact that all of this stuff had so many outstanding impacts on our country in so many different ways. And the fact that so many of the stuff, uh, so much of this stuff does come up in so many of our different episodes is very important to see, wow, stuff happens and it impacts everything. Everything's interconnected. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, stick around for part two and part three. Uh, they will be coming out soon. Uh, if you have any comments, if you have any questions, um, if there's any questions arose while you listen to this or anything you, uh, you know, were wondering previously, reach out to us. You can contact us on the Facebook page, Podcast Without Borders. Um, you can also send us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com. Let us know what your thoughts are. Let us know if we're missing some marks in terms of um, uh, policing, um, in terms of some of the stats and you know practices that we may have missed. Let us know because we want to know. We want to do this right. We want to get it right. Um, otherwise, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you all in uh, part two. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Social Discord, part of the Podcast Without Borders Network. You can get a hold of us by sending us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com. You can also check out our website at podcastwithoutborders.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.